0: Welcome back last time you might remember we were talking about faith essentials and a lot of that ended up we boiled it down to the historic apostles creed it's a great episode great to remind us what are the things that are firm and important and necessary for salvation for our faith to make sure that we are all generally speaking on the same page as christians now that doesn't cover everything and the reality is that there is a lot of stuff that gets left out of the creeds, out of a lot of important decision-making processes as far as core essential beliefs. But there's a lot of stuff going on in our world, and there's a lot of stuff we need to make decisions on. Well, surprise, we're not all on the same page on how these things get addressed. So this week, we are tackling these, this episode of what is non-essential. And I guess our first question is, uh, and what does it mean that something is non-essential?
1: Well, it's like you said, um, if things that are essential are the things that are explicit and crucial to salvation, then anything that's non-essential is anything that doesn't meet that definition. It means that it's something where even if you don't necessarily have the correct belief on it, or if we don't have all the same belief on it, it's not going to affect the status of our salvation. Um, And of course raises the question of, well, why is it not essential then? And it's because it's just not explicit in scripture. The reality is that scripture is the word of God. And we, we agreed on that. We even talked about that last week. That it's like That's one of the essentials. You have to believe that scripture is the word of God and that scripture is sufficient on its own. Which means that if scripture is not explicit on something, it's not explicit because it's not important enough to be explicit about. So there are just some things that really are not answered or they're not answered as fully, I think, as people would like. So,
0: Will? Yeah, there's... A lot of things that there isn't as much clarity as we would like. And a lot of that I usually reference to the fact that it's... Our latest text is roughly 2,000 years old. It's true. We are very removed from things. And so there are many things that are written about and recorded in just a different way than we would do a normal recording of history to this day. So not everything is covered the way we would like it because... We weren't the first people to get it. We weren't the people it was originally aimed at to say, hey, let me explain this to you. I'm sure if God was walking through, and this is our first one, the creation story, not everybody's on the same page for this one, and we'll get in that (laughs) for a second. But in our creation story, we have seven days, and it gives us this big picture of things coming together, being put together, formed together, beautiful beautiful imagery of God creating if he was talking to a 21st century mind maybe God would describe the atoms and the molecules and all that coming together but I think if you were trying to explain that to somebody way more than 2,000 years ago because that's just to Christ you're talking way longer uh, makes no sense at all And so we're left with the creation story as it was explained in the ancient Near East. Yeah. And so not everybody necessarily comes to that same understanding of whether it is seven literal days or as yom, that word for day, can be translated in a couple different ways. Sometimes it's just a period of time. So not everybody's on the seven-day creation. Some people are on the... Seven errors of time.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting too. We we were talking about this in the our, you know, pre-recording discussion, and so I looked up all the different uses for the word yom, which Will said that means day, and uh, funny enough, there's actually some uses where it means forever. And so it's like, you've got the two opposite ends of the spectrum that c- creation happened in seven literal days or creation happened in seven forever. We're just in the last forever now, but yeah, yeah, it's the reality is that it does say seven days in English, but in reality, what was written was seven yoms, which that word is ambiguous. It has multiple uses, it has multiple meanings. I mean, e- really, even in English, we can kind of understand it because now that one of the new thing, new-ish things, I guess it's been around for a couple of years, but a new-ish thing that people say is, uh, oh man, it's been a minute yep. about things. It's like, it has not been a literal minute. We just recognize that like, it's it's been a minute. It's been some unit of time <laughs> since we have last seen each other. And, you know, the, the, the use of time language, it can be ambiguous sometimes, and that's not Bad thing. It doesn't change the meaning of the story because, really, the the message of the creation story is not in how many days it took. It's in the fact that God spoke, and it was, and He did that six times in a row. Yep. God spoke, and it was so, and it was good. And when He spoke, and it was humanity, it was very good. That's the message of creation that we can all yeah. agree on. That's explicit. The specific meaning of the word yom, at the end of the day, I don't think you're going to get to heaven. If you believe it took course over 7 billion years, I don't think God's going to be like, no, I'm sorry, you're wrong. I meant literal days, like get out.
0: But if yep, you believe it, was, it's, it was seven 24 hour periods. Come yep, on, Gosh, Only except God, I made it any clearer. Yeah, for real. Yeah. I, I often point to, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created. If you can agree to that, yep. the rest of it, the rest of it is the the non-essential part of how it happened. Yeah. Genesis 1-1, that's the essential part. Well, God created, how he created, the, the details.
1: I would also add it is essential. God created, and then when it gets to the end, man and his image, I think is also M- pretty, pretty being important. very there. good
0: is, is an essential yeah. part.
1: Yeah, but aside from that, common argument, really not essential. Another big one that comes up a lot is the method of baptism. And this one I've heard many times. I feel like this is hopefully becoming less of an issue. I don't hear about this a lot anymore, other than in context, making fun of people who nitpick this, but there's always the argument of, do you sprinkle? Do you dunk? Do you pour? And to be honest, I think this matters a lot more for your Oreo cookies and your milk than it does for your baptism.
0: Yes, and amen.
1: Yes. Uh, what was it that you said? Uh, the the bubbles coming out? Is the sin leaving?
0: So when when I was in my undergrad, and we had to practice baptizing people. Yes, because that's what you do in ministry school at undergrad. You go to the pool and you practice baptizing. We we were joking about, yeah, when you uh, take somebody, you put them under, you hold them under until the, the bubbles stop. That's the sin leaving their body, and then they come up a new creation, sinless. It's not it. actually, if, if a pastor is holding you down there for like 10 plus seconds, get up.
1: I love it. So, what does the Bible say then about baptism? Well, in Matthew 28, I think it's probably one of the most pertinent verses uh, or pertinent chapters. At the end, as Jesus is leaving, he gives one final command to his disciples, and he says, go out into all corners of the earth, baptizing and making disciples. He doesn't say dunking. He doesn't say sprinkling. He doesn't say pouring. In fact, I could even hear an argument that what he means is baptizing people with the Holy Spirit. But I do think he's talking about water baptism here. But it's just like, he doesn't say what the method is. And to be honest, it doesn't matter. What scripture says about it is to do it. We are commanded in Jesus's last words to baptize people. And not once did he ever give specific instructions as to what that looked like. Other than there's two baptisms, the baptism with water, which is a baptism of repentance that John the Baptist did and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which me and Will have already said. This disagreement about what specifically that means—that's another episode.
0: (laughs) Yes, we'll we'll get there. We might touch on it a little bit more, but we'll we'll get there eventually. Yeah, I remember, I remember being at a school where the 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 denomination line was it's got to be a dunk, and somebody (laughs) asked the dean in our class of like, "All right, you know, the reality is there are some people that for whatever reason it could be like bodily paralysis." it's not practical to dunk somebody like that. And at the end of the day, he's like, the reality is I am pretty sure God's going to honor however you do it. Yeah, Like, yes, I do think it should be done in a dunk, but if you can't get them dunked, they'll do whatever it is. You know, God, God will take the baptism.
1: to, To be clear, I'm, I'm all for dunking. If you ask me like, Just go full immersion. We'll we'll, we'll go down to the water. Yeah, like, let's let's go pick a pool, pick a lake, whatever. Like, go full immersion. I'm all about full immersion. But at the end of the day, like you said, I think God's going to honor any outward sign, any outward proclamation of faith. And that's really what matters. What, What matters is that you are baptizing and being baptized. Uh, next one now this is one well I think you can probably speak to a little bit better than I can because of your pentecostal history
0: well, my, my pentecostal background uh, my people's the
1: speaking in tongues and just general manifestations of spiritual gifts How, what's the what's the people who who believe it's essential what's the argument there and and what does scripture actually have to say about these kind of things
0: So I'm going to try to sum this up as quickly as I can because I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. Sure, sure. But the the old school Pentecostal belief starting in like the 1920s at the Azusa Street Revival was baptism of the spirit. And that that particular term, the way they use it is similar to how Wesleyans would describe sanctification, where, where you are fully immersed in God and are like being purified of your sin. And they would say the first initial evidence of that happening would be speaking in tongues. Most modern Pentecostals that I know very well really don't hold to it that tightly anymore. There are still denominations that hold that as part of their fundamentals. But most people I know within those denominations are like, it is a sign, such as any other gift being manifested shows that God is working in one's life. For me, the important part, as I understand it, is not so much the manifestation of any singular gift, but if any gift is manifesting, that's a great and wonderful thing. And at the end of the day, those things are to point people to God for the building up of the body. And so however you view these things, it's really not essential whether you think, and some might make it essential, but it's not essential whether you speak in tongues or manifest some crazy supernatural gift or your gifts are rather normal quote unquote looking that aren't flashy and supernatural and scary teaching (laughs) right like those things are teaching preaching uh helping people grace mercy like those things aren't big and flashy but they're just as important as somebody speaking in tongues or somebody that can pray over somebody and they get healed manifestation of great gifts are great but first corinthians 13 talks about the importance of love over all of those things
1: yes specifically what it says is that like if i do all of these things like if i perform miracles if i can move mountains even it actually goes even farther even if i give my life up For Christ, if I die for God, but I don't have love, which it says is the greatest spiritual gift. It says these, these three things remain faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. If I do all of these things and I don't have love, it's nothing. Spiritual gifts are amazing. But the key message of scripture is not that one gift is better than another or anything like that with the exception of love. And none of them matter apart from that. Uh, I think it's also interesting too because you you mentioned speaking in tongues. Um, the two two things that you said that I thought were noteworthy. One was you referred to 1920s as old school. Uh, we're talking about like a religion that's 2,000 years old.
0: So, so let me <laughs> let me clarify why I refer to that as old school. Azusa Street happened in the 1920s, which is the the start of all Pentecostal modern Pentecostal denominations. It was a revival that happened out in California, I believe. And from that moment, there were people speaking in tongues. And so Pentecostal denominations have basically formed from that line of reasoning of people yeah. were speaking in tongues. Then people should continue to always speak in tongues. Mm-hmm. So that's why I refer to it as old school Pentecostals, because that's kind of where the movement as a whole started. No, I know. Not I think old it's school just... of the religion as a whole.
1: I know. It's just funny applying the word old school to Christianity when it's like, Really, a lot of the things that have happened, I mean, even Protestantism, is fairly modern, all things yes. considered. Considering that we started with Judaism back with Abraham, for like, what, 4,000 years ago? It's like, even Protestantism is fairly new to the scene in the world of Christianity. And
0: you know what they say about Father Abraham.
1: He had many sons.
0: And many sons had Father Abraham.
1: I'm one of them. And so
0: are you. Are you. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, that's gonna sound really. Well. You are one of them, and so are you. Yes, man, you are indeed. Oh, classic church song.
1: Yeah, I love it. Um, anyway, the other the other thing, real real quick note. The other thing I thought it was funny is, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who place emphasis, like you said, on the the flashier gifts, the speaking in tongues and the healings and stuff. Um, but Paul actually specifically talks about speaking in tongues and says, like, what use is speaking in tongues if you don't have a translator? yes and it's like yes,
0: because they they were having that same issue of people were like oh this is the greatest gift ever we need to be yeah practicing it.
1: everybody wanted and to be speaking in tongues he said but there's no translators so what good are you
0: doing go to an AG school and nothing's changed <sighs> some things don't sorry southeastern i love you but uh <laughs> i remember my time hey man don't be dissing southeastern but hey, i i love southeastern alma mater right there one of the two
1: all righty. So moving, moving forward, yeah, we could talk about that one all day. We could do a whole episode on that. Another fun one. This is oh, this is always sure to get people riled up. Is your end time beliefs? Here's your SAT word or your word to impress your pastor. It's eschatology.
0: Show me the SATs that have eschatology on it.
1: I don't know, man. That sounds like an SAT word, but it's it's you know it's a long word. It's got more than three syllables, so.
0: Anyways, to say the end time belief.
1: Yes, eschatology is basically just your belief about the specific nature and timing of the Book of Revelation. So,
0: and other prophetic nature. get some, Some stuff in Daniel that's talking about the end of the world. That's so, fair. It's not fine. just
1: exclusive to the end times. The second coming, which we did say, the second coming belief in that is an essential belief, and so this is what I want to clarify. What we're talking about here is it's essential to believe that Christ is coming again. It is essential to believe in the second coming. What is not essential is the specific beliefs on when that is happening. And actually, the reason is because it's not explicit in Scripture. Um, There's a lot of people who take Revelation and other uh, apocalyptic texts,
0: yes. Apocalyptic books of hope, yes. There are supposed to be scary.
1: There are a lot of people who take these books literally, or they realistically take parts literally, and so this is my this is my my argument uh, against that. So in Revelation chapter twelve, there is a part where there is a dragon waiting at the feet of a woman who is giving birth to eat her baby as soon as as it is born and as soon as the baby is born it's snatched up by an angel and taken away now if you can explain the literal dragon and explain to me how that part is literal then i would say we can have a conversation about the literalness of everything else until then I think it's much easier to understand Revelation with the assumption that a lot of it is metaphorical. There is a literal message in Revelation, and that is the second coming is happening. Jesus is coming back. In, In the last chapter, it says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. That's literal. He's coming back. And he said that himself. I like he's coming Hallelujah. back. I'll be back. You know, we got Arnold Jesus out here. So he is coming back. That is very literal, very real. You have to believe that. But he doesn't say one. And that's OK. Um, well, did you want to dig into the whole pre-trib, post-trib? And I think there's a, there's a third option there somewhere. What all that uh, stuff I, means.
0: I won't dig too much into Revelation. I am an official pantheist. Uh, it all what? pans out in the end.
1: Oh,
0: So pre-trib, post-trib, whenever everything happens, I'm along for the ride. I know that uh, Jesus wins in the end. Evil, yeah. evil gets defeated. Good wins. I'm happy with that. I don't need to try to understand everything. But part of it is also understanding that a lot of it is is written in metaphor, and it's written in language and symbolism at the time that people at that time would have understood. I actually did this exercise with my students a couple weeks ago where we wrote on the, the board, like text shorthand. So like, LOL, laugh out loud. We, we did a bunch of them, but before I had the kids say what they were, I asked some of our leaders, like, Hey, do you know what that is? And some of our leaders a little bit older, not even by that much, but older enough to be like, I, I don't know what that means. And I was one of them. Oh, I think it was like BRB. And our, some of my kids didn't even know what that was. And I'm like, man, as a gamer, I, I use that all the time. But <laughs> it was so interesting to see that just like 20 years removed, 20, 30 years different, all of a sudden they don't understand the text, yep. the literal text of what's happening between people. And so what's going to happen when we're 2,000 years removed? Yeah, for sure. And not only that, but you're having John visualizing seeing these things in in a a trance like state if you saw like a car or a plane i don't know what he would describe that as maybe i don't know i leave a lot of it up to the metaphor and yes we can try to understand but at the end of the day like you said the important part is knowing that in the end jesus comes back we win gg (laughs) We've already won.
1: Oh, now Will. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you take this one. I kinda I kinda took us first on the last one, so you gotta take first on this one. Oh, the okay. Worship Wars.
0: Woo! Worship Wars! Good old worship wars, wars. Why
1: is it what is it? Why is it not essential? And what does scripture have to say about it?
0: So it's it's this. I want to call it an issue because it can become an issue for some where we have two major styles of worship at our time. And there's definitely shades in between, but there are contemporary worship, the worship with drums, guitar, microphones, all that doing contemporary praise and worship music. And then you have traditional music where usually you're doing it with piano, organ and a hymnal, everybody singing together, beautiful, wonderful. Both of these things are great. Neither of these things is necessarily more right than the other. They're both wonderful things. Yep. We don't need to fight about them. There's not one more anointed than the other. <laughs> As uh, Ben had pointed out earlier that in psalm 150 and then do you have psalm 150 handy on on you
1: i don't but i can tell you some of the lines from it i can tell you the I, I know you, you have some of
0: the lines like
1: but i'll, I'll pull here. it i'll pull it up real quick if you hear some clickety clack and that's my keyboard over here as i'm typing to pull up psalm 150 for us and i'm going to pull it up in the esv which is the only true christian version of the bible um kidding non-essential kidding <laughs> I figured that was an appropriate joke for the, the topic at hand this week. Anyway,
0: it goes oh, like this. Come on. If we're talking like traditional and contemporary worship, you really should have gone for the KJV.
1: Yeah, I know. But I'm a modern guy.
0: You Anyways. So, NKJV. <laughs>
1: All right. <laughs> Psalm 150. <laughs> Psalm 150 says, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with string and pipes. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud, clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I think, I think that the message here is praise God. I don't think that there's really any concern with what we use to do it. He's just saying, make noise, praise him. It doesn't matter if it's a trumpet, if it's your voice, if you have breath, praise him. If you got a tambourine or a trumpet or cymbals, like make noise
0: for God. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord.
1: Yeah. Uh, make a and skillful when I'm noise. It is a
0: joyful noise unto the Lord alone. It is not joyful for anyone near me. Yes. Yeah, it really, that's. But the at the end of the day, there are styles, there are preferences. Yes. Yes, they exist. The important thing is that wherever you are worshiping, that you are engaged in that worship. And I would go a step further in saying, even if your preference is, say, contemporary worship, you find yourself a traditional service engage with God all the same yeah worship is a choice that we choose to engage in yes we have our preference but that's that should not stop us from engaging with God in that way
1: yeah I think I think what it comes down to is that worship is not for us it's an offering that we are making to God and I mean as long as the the offering is is befitting of God, then I don't think it matters what it sounds or looks like. It's just, it's an offering that we are giving him simply because he deserves it. And because he's worthy of our praise, regardless of what that may sound like. If it's praise, it's for God.
0: Yeah. And I remember over the summer, we went to a camp and on the last night, they legit led us in like an hour and a half long worship set. It was the end of the night, big worship night. It was great. And I remember one of my leaders coming to me afterwards. She's like, I have never thought about worship as a sacrifice or something hard to do until I really tried to just focus on worshiping God for that long. (laughs) And it it was like that little thing. But I'm like, we usually do such short little things of like, we're going to go worship for an hour on Sunday morning. Like, worship can go on much longer than that. Yep. Think about like what's going or what has been going on at Asbury University. Just thinking that. Yeah. Like they they started a service on a Wednesday. It went on for like two weeks straight.
1: Twelve days, I think, was the final total.
0: Yeah. Like it's insane. That's worship as a sacrifice. And I don't think they were fighting over what style it was. They were just worshiping.
1: All right. So on we move to a great question of can we, can we play video games? Can we listen to secular music? Can we watch TV? And if so, can we watch this show or that show? We really get tripped up with this question. Anytime we start a question with, can we, or what does the Bible say about, (laughs) 90% of the time, we are, we are so missing the point on these things and we make it so essential. We're like, you know, we think the video games are bad, so no one should be allowed to play video games. We gotta ban video games. They're melting our kids' minds, or you know, Don't we hear are. Oh, I, I know that will, but you know. <laughs> uh or or we we go after secular music and we'll we'll say, like, oh, well, there's some bad secular music, so we gotta ban the whole thing. We can't listen to any secular music. But I think scripture actually offers a very different take than most Christians are familiar with. And and in fact I I In my conversations with a lot of Christians, they're not even familiar with this passage. More reason why, read your Bible, cover to cover, you should know it. By Romans 14, 20 through 23, it says this, it says, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And there's two key messages there. One... Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Replace the word food with music, with movies, with TV, video games. Like, don't destroy the work of God for something that is not important. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So if what you're doing is causing other people to stumble, well, then yeah, you should consider how important is it that I be allowed to consume this type of music or allowed to consume this type of TV show. But again, you are blessed if you have no reason to pass judgment on yourself for what you watch. If you feel no conviction, if you feel absolutely sure in your heart there's nothing wrong with it, then don't worry about it. If it's not explicitly prohibited and you don't feel any guilt, don't worry about it. But then the last point, and it's so crucial here... But if you have doubt, any doubt, if you, even a little bit, are not sure that what you're doing is right, if there's a part of you that's not sure that listening to that song or playing that game or watching that show, whatever it is, is right, and it says that it's not coming from faith, and whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, so... That doubt should not be coming from people. It shouldn't be coming from, you know, mom told me that such and such a thing is bad. But, you know, if it's coming from God and you are feeling conviction about it, then yeah, it is wrong. But if you're not, and it's not prohibited directly in scripture, you're kind of in the clear. Any thoughts yeah, on that, Will?
0: I usually go with the idea of moderation for a lot of those things. It's not wrong to play video and it's not wrong to listen to secular music. But that first part about not letting it influence you, that's where it gets a little hard. We have to have enough self-awareness to be like, oh, I am listening to this music. It is making me think this way, say these things, whatever. Like a couple weeks ago, Linkin Park had released a unreleased song from Chester, who was their former lead singer. Tragic story with that. And I was like, man, I really want to hear this. I was listening to it and ended up just listening to some Lincoln Park. And I was like, "Man, I remember where I was when I got really into this." I also know like this ain't good to be listening to too much. Listen to it a little bit, but yeah, there's, there's a little bit of language in there. <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of unhealthy emotions that's going on in there. And yeah, uh, yeah listening to it once or twice, not going to affect me. But it was like if I got it on repeat for a week. It's going to start affecting me. So being mindful of those things. And that that goes with all of those like games, music, inherently just listening, just playing, just watching is probably not a sin, but it's when those things start to get in the way of you and God, when they start to change who you are, direct who you are, that's when it becomes a problem.
1: I think that's why it's so great that he uses the example of food because foods are much Easier version to understand of the idea of like moderation, like you said. You know, eating one fried Twinkie is not gonna kill you. But if you're eating fried twinkies for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, it's going to be horrible for you. So yeah, I, I definitely like that idea of sometimes it's not even a matter of whether or not something is bad, it's just about how much you're consuming something that maybe is not it's not beneficial. Even if it's not bad, it may not be beneficial. So how much you consume of non-beneficial can have an impact too.
0: Yeah, and it also hits that time and the place of if you do this and it causes your brother to stumble, don't do it. Uses this specifically with meat or or drinking wine. Like If you're around somebody that is recovering from a drinking problem, don't drink around them. It's (sighs) kind of a jerk thing to do yeah like don't do anything that's going to lead one of your brothers to stumble so moving along a little bit we're going to jump into something that Ben and I actually had some very interesting conversation before yes. we even started on yes, this one yes we did and it was one of those situations where we we think we know what we know and then we go back to the text and we're like ooh Maybe I'm looking at the text a little bit differently this time. And this is communion. Yeah. And so there's a couple questions that come along with communion. And I let's tackle how often first. Okay. Because how often is the correct frequency of taking communion?
1: All day, every day.
0: All day, every day? All day, every
1: day. Bread and wine for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's it. And snack? And snack.
0: And midnight snack? And midnight snack and second breakfast mm, and 11 and luncheon and afternoon tea dinner we go, and supper we go. <laughs> right so like we we have this most american churches and i really can't speak for anything outside of american churches because i'm not super familiar uh outside of actually even then i gotta qualify that even more most american protestant churches yes will do communion about once a month some will do it even less frequently. They'll do it once a quarter, once a year. I don't. They don't do it all the time. Whereas our Catholics brothers are usually taking it every time they meet for Mass. Such an important part for them. So uh, how often should we take it? Is there a, a right or wrong answer here, Ben? I mean,
1: truthfully, this is one of those issues where, like I said, Scripture's not explicit on it. So it gives instructions for how to take communion. It mm-hmm. explains about what the bread and the wine mean and everything and the importance of taking communion. It also does say that communion is taken when you gather, which you could take to mean every time you gather, or you could take it to mean that communion is not something that's taken alone. It's taken when you gather. It's taken when you are together as a community. The reality is that this is actually one of those things where I think tradition has told us what the right amount of frequency is to take communion. And for many people, tradition says once a week. Personally, I'm all for that. I think more communion is better than less communion. Why not to communion more often? But at the end of the day, there's not a specific amount given it doesn't say in scripture that like once a month or the first Sunday or the last Sunday or last Saturday, which we'll talk about when dig Sabbath and the whole thing about that. But um it doesn't say what day of the week to take communion, it doesn't say how often to take communion. I it's just not explicit there.
0: Yeah, and talking about tradition, like the reason why we only do it once a month is a, a American tradition in and of itself. It goes back to the early foundings of the US and The pastor's trying to have these churches built and set up everywhere, but they needed an ordained elder to give communion. There weren't enough on the state side, so they're like, we're going to ride around and visit these places. We'll get to everywhere about once a month.
1: Fun fact, it also doesn't say in scripture that you have to be ordained to administer communion. (laughs) But that, again, is something where tradition is kind of dictated. That's just how we do it, but it's not there in scripture. Yep. So another big question, though, is, well, there's two different takes on this. Uh, what's called an open table and a closed table. What does scripture have to say about that? And what does that mean, first of all?
0: Yeah. So just tackling open verse closed. Open communion is when usually it's, it's you start the communion liturgy or you give the communion message, whatever it is, and then all are invited kind of leaves the where you're at in your faith journey on you to whether you choose to go up and take communion. Closed communion, on the other hand, is more or less dictated by a status, whether it be membership, uh, a known profession of faith. Usually it's you have to be a member or knowingly have taken within this community certain steps of faith to take communion with us.
1: I think baptism is a common requirement too, that like some churches will say, if you're not baptized yet, then you can't partake in communion.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I'll be honest aside from my experience with the Orthodox traditions I don't think I've ever been to a closed communion church, or at least a church that I have not been able to take communion at, uh, at any age, like even as a teenager visiting other churches on like mission trips, I, I guess if you're going there as a, missionary they might just pre-assume that you're good to go i don't don't know
1: i i think part of the reason why it's not as common anymore is i think there's a there's a fear of being politically incorrect now and like a lot of churches don't want to create a scene even if theologically they believe that it should be closed i think there's a lot of fear in telling people no you're not allowed to take it (laughs) or saying like all right would all the members please stand up and take communion and then you know you gotta like find their name on the list and check them off and so it, it would certainly scripture be a
0: communion this week.
1: It would certainly be a, a process, but Scripture does have a little bit of advice to offer here, and I think that once again it points to the idea that we're focusing on the wrong things with communion. It's not about who can take it and who can't. It's not about how often you take it. But what Scripture does tell us about is how to take it. And it says that we need to be right with God. I don't know if there's a specific wording that I'm missing there, but essentially that like we have to have the right heart before we take communion. If we're not, if there is still something between us and God, if we are not made right with him first, then Paul says that we are basically eating and drinking sin upon ourselves. Like We are taking sin on ourselves and we take communion in an unworthy manner. Now, what that means to you, that's between you and God, to be honest. I don't think that we have the right to say who is right with God, who is taking communion in a worthy manner. I mean, unless somebody is just openly and absolutely professed against him. I think if somebody professes themselves to be a Christian, Paul says, don't ask who's going to heaven. Don't ask who's going to hell. That's not our place to judge. And It should be kind of like if you think they're a Christian, they should be encouraged to take communion, but they need to decide for themselves whether they are taking it in a worthy manner. And I think that's just really – that's the point we miss is we're trying to figure out on our own how to tell which people should and should take it, should not take it. Mm -hmm. But in reality, what it should be is we should be doing a better job of focusing on the importance of making sure that we're taking it in a proper manner, because that is what scripture addresses.
0: Yeah, so the section you were thinking on, Ben, comes from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter, I'm way too far down, the page 11, (laughs) verses 28 through 29, and it's, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of christ eat and drink judgment on themselves yeah now that i would recommend anybody that's really like trying to figure this whole communion thing out uh not from the like what is the symbolism but where what's right what's wrong there's a there's not a ton of passages that talk in depth about communion but one of them it comes from first corinthians uh, chapter 11 17 through 34 it's a great place and it talks about not just taking of communion, but those that have abused it. So that can be a great place for you to do a little bit of study on your own on what that looks like. Make sure you hit up those show notes. (laughs) Um, And so like we, we were talking and I I think like Ben and I both kind of landed on the idea of like, it should be open is good, but it shouldn't necessarily be encouraged of like, if, if you're not sure, you shouldn't feel coerced to do it. It should be yeah, perfectly absolutely. normal for when people are taking communion, if people just don't get up. And sometimes I've seen that where people are just like, well, everybody's getting up. So I guess I'm going to, too. Yeah.
1: Will, I want to ask one last question. And uh, and again, I'm going to give you the opportunity to start first because I know this is something you are very passionate about. This is probably your favorite of the Ten Commandments. I think it's probably your favorite word in the entire Bible other than maybe like Jesus or salvation. Uh, and it is Sabbath.
0: Man, Sabbath. I I will straight up tell somebody if you are not practicing the Sabbath, you are not being a good biblical leader. Oh, uh, I, I will. I will clap on this because Sabbath is so important. It is designed for us. And we can't operate without doing it. And <laughs> follow the the devil don't take a day off, so I don't. You better get a better role model. But then that mm. becomes, there's this question of, okay, cool. Sabbath, when do you take it? What's the right day for Sabbath? Oh, What's the right day? When do you take it? My short answer is you take it when you can. Yeah. Cuz in ministry the reality is for myself or Ben Sundays which somehow has correlated into this is the Sabbath day, uh it was the Lord's day became the Sabbath day, cool whatever. Well it's it's not rest for us. I mean, if you've ever had to preach two services and do a Bible study and tech just preaching one service or whatever, like it it is work. Yeah. So for me, my Sabbath, I try to go go old school Jewish as best I can for the sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Oh, you do sundown to sundown. That's that's how they did it back old school. Of course, that's how they counted their days. So like it's one day collectively for them. But the important part at the end of the day is that you actually do the Sabbath. Yeah. The finite details of the day, it doesn't matter a whole ton to God, and God's just wanting you to honor it. At least, I don't think it's a big deal to God. I don't think he's going to smite me for taking my Sabbath on Friday to Saturday instead of taking it on Sunday. You know, Mark 2.27 says that (laughs) Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Keep your priorities straight. It's, It's for you. I don't care when you practice it. Just practice it. Yeah. Ben, do you have any thoughts beyond mine?
1: I do. I do have thoughts that are different than yours sometimes. It's uh, periodically. I think we're on the same page on this. But I, I just wanted to touch on, I, I think one of the failures that we have as Christians today is a lot of times we don't ask like the why we do things. We just do it because that's just how things are done. And I think Sabbath, again, is one of those things where we've mentioned for a few of these that it's not actually coming from Scripture. It's just coming from tradition. And I think there actually is some beauty in the idea of everybody taking Sabbath together on Saturday or Sunday or whatever day that we just picking one day of the week and everyone taking Sabbath together. But I think it's important that we remember too that that comes from a context where you had an entire nation of people who all believed in the same religion, the same God, and their laws were coming not from people but from God himself. The reality is that the world just does not work the same anymore. We don't live in a country where everybody's the same religion and we can't shut everything down for one day a week. Many of us would not be employable if we said we absolutely are not willing to work Sundays. Um, Or at least we wouldn't be employable by many employers. So there's a, (laughs) you know, and it's like, I don't think God is asking us uh, to just Throw away everything just so that we can, on a specific day of the week, take a rest. You know, it's like you said, I think you you quoted that the man was not created for the Sabbath, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like God didn't make the Sabbath because he just really wanted us to honor him. He created a Sabbath because he was setting an example for us that like, we need to rest. God is the only one who does not really need to rest. He did it to set an example for us and to create a model for us. And I think when it comes to scripture, again, the wording is more like, just do it. Just take a Sabbath. Don't get so caught up on what day, whether it's a whole day or sundown to sundown. Just take a Sabbath because you need to rest. So, Will, as we, as we draw this to a close, um, I want to ask a very important question because I feel like this is a question that probably bothers a lot of people when we talk about stuff like this. So we as Christians believe it is essential that we believe that the Bible is sufficient for all things. Yeah. Here we are. We've been discussing for 48 minutes and 43 seconds, uh, About all of these things that are not explicit in scripture, that are not fully explained, or that they're explained in such a way that there is questions that can still be asked about them. And it's been 2,000 years, you know, since we've had some updates to this book. There's a lot of unanswered questions. So why do you think that God leaves some things unexplained or underexplained? Why is it that there are all of these issues that are mentioned in the Bible, but they're not explicitly laid out?
0: One of my first thoughts when I saw this originally was that I think so much of the the question marks and, I mean, kind of going back to that, like, can we question? And we said, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to live by your conviction. Like, if God is convicting you not to do this, don't do it. I think there is a ton of stuff that is written about across Old and New Testament. The, the they are in agreement with each other on what's sin, what's not sin. Uh, there's also a lot of stuff that's developed over the years that may or may not have a direct correlation within the older New Testament. But I think why it's allowed to be open is because you can't just read the text plainly and always get a great answer. You need to read it. One, you need to dig into the, the hermeneutics of it, what is actually going on in the text at the time, but you also need God's Holy Spirit to help guide you through the reading of it and to help you seek and understand. Because I think it's through God's Holy Spirit that we we will come to an understanding. We will know what's in, what's not. We will have convictions for many of these, these questions and these difference of opinions. But it invites God into that, problem-solving process, whereas if everything could just be solved by reading scripture alone without a single reference or prayer to God, well, what's the point? It's supposed to point us to him, to draw us close to him, to reveal who he is. There's still relationship to be had. So I think that's part of why it leaves some things unopened and unexplained. And the other reason is A lot of it was not important to many back then, or through the cultural lens, we lose what was important. Yeah, for sure. Like there's many things that just the way they're recorded, again, going back to creation, the way it was recorded for an ancient Near East setup scenario place, it's a lot different from how we would want that answer 4,000-ish years later. Our questions, they're a little different than what was the question back then. And that's okay, but we have to recognize that that maybe it's not trying to answer our questions. Maybe some of our questions weren't seen as a big deal then. Or maybe they had tradition and it wasn't a question in the first place. They just knew what to do because they had figured it out and, you know, great for them. But there's a lot of leeway, I think, that just goes into... Relationship with God and understanding that the text was originally written for somebody else. We're reading mail in a lot of places. Still great I'm for us, still mail. enlightens us, still illuminates us. But it wasn't written to me in a 21st century context. Yeah. It was written to somebody in an ancient Near East or a Greek culture living their lives. Things look a little different around here. If you haven't noticed philosophy is different. Lifestyle's different. Pretty much everything's different except for God. We're all still human. It's all still the same. God stayed the same. God did stay the same.
1: Yeah. I think, first of all, I think those are all great points. I I think, I think that's a a really great idea. And actually, so Will and I, we intentionally didn't discuss this one beforehand. So I didn't know what Will was going to say about that, but I, I think those are solid points. Um, I think the only things I would add to it uh, are: first, I think part of the reason that some things are left unexplained or underexplained is that if we look at the model of how faith in God developed, there was immediately a tendency towards legalism. I mean, when Jesus came, one of the one of the issues that he ran up into was the legalistic Pharisees, and they took the law. And they obeyed the letter of the law, but never the spirit. And so, Will, you kind of mentioned like that idea of drawing God into the process and everything. Um, I think that God knows that we have a tendency to err towards legalism. We want to, we want to take something and observe it like to the T sometimes. And I think He left some things open because they needed to be open. Because there are some issues where there's not going to be a final say and a final way that works for all humanity, for all eternity, across every culture, every language. Like, for example, when we take a Sabbath. I think that once upon a time, there was all of God's people in one country under one God who could take a Sabbath together as a nation. But God knew that there was going to come a time when his people were going to be made up not just of the Jewish, but of all people of Jews and Gentiles alike, and they would be scattered across the world in different time zones, in different places, in different countries, under different leaders. And they were not going to be able to celebrate that together. And that was okay. So he didn't leave this proclamation that would, that would leave some people out, some people unable to participate in his law, because he knew that legalism was not always going to be the answer. I think that's part of, I think that's why some things are unexplained. And I think the other reason is also just because some things are meant to be what's called a divine mystery. We use that phrase when we explain the Trinity, Uh, some people get really tripped up on the Trinity man, it's the conversations I've had about that one, but some things are meant to be a divine mystery. Like God says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And that's Okay. That's part of being a human is that we are ultimately not meant to know every little thing. In particular, I think back to the the revelation or the, I'm sorry, not the revelation, but the eschatology uh, conversation. I mean, we're just not meant to know. Jesus said nobody knows the, the day or the hour, except for the father. That's okay. We don't need to spend our whole lives trying to figure it out. We just have to trust that if he says he's coming back, he is. And I think that's that's the, the other main reason why is that like God wants us to remember that it's not us in control. We don't need to know everything. We want to know everything. We're curious, but curiosity is also what got us kicked out of the garden. We're like, ooh, I want to know what right and wrong is. I want to know <laughs> the difference between good and evil. I got to be on the same level of knowledge as God. God's saying, no, you don't. You do not need to know everything, so I'm not going to tell you everything. And I think it's humbling, but I think that's part of the human experience. That's part of what it means to be a human is recognized, and specifically to be a Christian human, is recognizing that we are under God and not the other way around. God knows what we need to know. And if he didn't make it explicit, if he didn't make it clear, then don't build your life on it. He made enough things explicit and enough things clear and said, this is So those things we can build our life on. And if we can spend our life and our our faith focusing on those things instead of getting caught up in all the nitty-gritty little details, then maybe one day we will finally see the body of Christ actually united again.
0: That's the prayer, isn't it? (laughs) Amen, Amen. that's my prayer. (laughs)
1: Thanks again for listening this week. We'd like to give a special thank you to Travis D'Amato for both our theme music and sound editing. If you like either, you can find and contact him at Music 93 on Instagram. That's D-A-M-A-T-O, Music 93. Remember to follow us on social media at Everyday Faith Podcast. And if you like what we're doing, don't forget to share it. We're always looking for feedback to help us grow, and we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening to the Everyday Faith Podcast.